passages that I'm going to refer to this morning, some of them are my, my absolute favorites, and the first one is this, Luke 12. This has been one of the chapters that has been so important in my life over the years. And it's so much stuff that, that Christ lays out there for our life. But one of the teachings he gives in Luke chapter 12, verse 15, Jesus says this, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Unfortunately, oftentimes this is how we weigh our life. How valuable our life is or whether or not we've accomplished anything in life by how much we have and what we have and how expensive the things that we have. Christ sets a perspective for us, and when we come to these verses in chapter 4, this is what Solomon is going to help us with. He's going to carry on this thought of hard, life's hardships and life's companions, and he's going to continue this thought all the way through verse 16, and we're going to look at verses 4 through 6, and it's nice because he sort of sets these verses off for us a little bit. He's going to give us a negative thought in verse 4. He's going to give us another one in verse 5. And then in verse 6, he's going to bring us to a positive point. And might read these verses and think, I, I really don't understand what's going on here. He sets the stage for us in verse 4. Verse 5, he's going to provide a contrast. The fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. And it seems like it's rather isolated, this statement. But I'm going to show you how it connects with verse 4. And then verse 6, we have a positive and a negative, but we're going to end on the positive. We're going to end on the one full hand of rest instead of the two fists with labor and striving after the wind. He brackets these verses for us. In verse 4, he ends with the statement of this to his vanity, striving after the wind. He ends with this in verse 6. And then notice verse 7 as he moves to the next section. He's going to begin with this. He's going to talk about the fact that he says, I looked again at the vanity under the sun. And this is going to set the stage for the verses that follow. And we're not going to get into those today, but just to sort of get us looking that way. There is movement here, and it is seemingly negative all the way through this chapter, but not necessarily so. Some have isolated and simply said this is only dealing with business and work, and that's all that it is dealing with here. I'm going to show you that there are principles for everything in life, and so that's how we're going to look at it, although we'll talk about labor and work. But if we can sum up this chapter, some have described it as the futility of chasing after the worldly success, the rotten steps on the world's ladder of success. And if you walk through this passage, we can see it this way. There is ruthless oppression, which we looked at last week. There is the rat race rivalry, which we will see this morning, the relentless greed, the risky isolation, and the recurring instability. Took me a little work to come up with all ours, but I managed to pull it off. This is a very Western outline, all right? But that's not going to be our outline. We're just going to take it as Solomon lays it out for us. I'll just tell you in your notes, there's much more in your notes than what I'm going to cover this morning. I'll just give you some extra thoughts to ponder on if you would like to. But we enter in as we come to verses 4, 1 through 3. And here he's observing the oppression, and we saw this last week, and we understand that Scripture condemns the abuse of power and authority, and this is where he takes us at the beginning of this. And we know that over and over God has reminded his people of the sins of exploitation and oppression, and the godly are not only supposed to refrain from oppose, uh, oppressing others, but they're also supposed to actively seek to do something to pursue justice on the behalf of those who are being oppressed. And this is the point that I made last week with my boys. 
Tell them to turn the other cheek when something comes towards them, but if they see someone else suffering unjustly or being oppressed, that they are to do something. And I don't necessarily mean they need to do something physically, but at the same time, I'm not necessarily saying that that isn't going to happen. But we must do something. We can't stand by when we see injustice, and we cannot stand by when we see those who are being oppressed. One of my favorite passages in Proverbs is in chapter 24, verses 11 and 12. And in verse 11, what we have here is the avoidable responsibilities. Now think about the wording, avoidable responsibilities. In other words, there are things that come in life and we look at it and say, you know what, that's none of my business. Or we excuse and say, well, I really didn't know that was happening, so I couldn't get involved and I, I couldn't do anything about it. That's what Solomon is talking about here in Proverbs 24, 11, and 12. And he says this, Rescue those who are unjustly sentenced to die, and those who are staggering to slaughter. Oh, hold them back. I've been challenged by these verses, especially this one over the years. Because I watch people, watch other people being unjustly treated, and they do absolutely nothing about it. An example, several years ago I was watching the news. And there was this young woman, and she was arrested, but at the time, what led to her arrest was the fact that she beat this old man in, the, in a park. And she beat him severely. She was stomping on him. How we know that she was doing this was that it was caught on video, people's cell phone, right? But here's the thing that was staggering to me. Not that this girl stomped on him and beat this elderly man up, but the fact that everyone else standing around had phones where they were recording this and not one single person did anything to stop her. Not one. When the police finally caught her, they asked her why she did this. And the reason she did it was because she saw that the elder man had cigarettes in his pocket. She wanted one, but she didn't want to ask for them. So she took them by force. But what galled me was the fact that people stood there and let her do this and did nothing. We must respond to injustice. We can't say that it's none of our business. Verse 12 of chapter 24, Proverbs, Solomon says this, Do not excuse yourself by saying, well, we didn't know anything about this. You may say it's none of your business, but God knows and judges your motives. He knows if you know or not. <laughs> and this is what he goes on to say. Does he not consider and weigh your hearts? Does he not know he who keeps your soul? Does he not know that you know these things and yet you do nothing about them? And will he not render a man according to his work or the fact that he does nothing? These verses always ring in my ears. And where I see injustice, I must respond. And sometimes, yes, I've had to get physical. I think of a moment in Las Vegas. I was there with some friends, and we were passing in this bridge that connected two buildings. And so we're coming into the backside of this building as we go across this passageway. And the backside of the building, there was this massive room, tables and chairs set up, and there was no one there. And it seemed like the building was vacant. But there was a bathroom, and I told my friends just to go on. I need to use the restroom, and I'll catch up with you. I walk in the restroom to find two very large men stomping a young man against the wall. They had him pinned down. Now, 
they were revealing the reason for why they were stomping this young man because they felt that he was quite effeminate and therefore, because they were manly men, they felt it upon themselves that they needed to inflict pain upon him. You can't just stand there and do nothing. I managed to get the young man out from the other two and got him out of the bathroom. My friends ended up coming back around. They got security. The police got involved and they arrested the two men who did this. We cannot stand by and watch injustice. We cannot say it's none of our business. We can't sit there with our cell phones and record it and watch what happens and say nothing and do nothing. The godly not only are not to oppress people, we are supposed to seek justice for those who cannot seek it for themselves. The other thing that Solomon observes is in verses 4 through 6, and this is where we spend our time this morning. I've seen that every labor and every skill which is done as a result of rivalry. This verse gives a weighty diagnosis, right? Because he talks about the fact that it is effort that is motivated by a desire to outclass and outshine others to the glorification of self and to the exaltation of self. And he gets down to the heart attitude. He gets down to motivation here in these verses. And this is important for us. What is it that drives what we do? Because this is where God really analyzes us. It isn't just merely the actions that we take, but it's the things that drive the actions. It is the motivation that lies behind them. And here there is a drive towards superiority. I have to tell you, I wrestled with these verses years ago because I grew up playing sports. Does this mean you can't be competitive? No. <laughs> but it sure tells you how to compete. And we have to be cautious because oftentimes we find ourselves moving into realms we might not go when put ourselves in a position in which we compete with other people. So think about the principles that are here. Yes, they might pertain to business and work and so on, but they also pertain to other things. But Solomon here is going to deal with the movers and the shakers. He is the king, has the ability to look from the top of the ladder down and see things. He knows how these people tick. He was just like them. If you look at chapter 2 as he describes the things that he pursued, this was something that drove him and motivated him. So no matter where one is on that ladder, as they're either trying to ascend it or if they're on the top of the hill, he draws a conclusion that everything under the sun ultimately does not satisfy. So abundant material wealth, he says, look, it, it's attractive, it draws our attention, it excites our desire, but in the end, it does not satisfy us. And this is the refrain that he comes to. It is vanity. It is striving after the wind. We find it in verse 7, verse 8, and verse 16. And he actually brackets this whole section, verses 14 and 16, with this inclusio. And he brackets this whole entire thing. And therefore, he wants us to have this thought in mind as we walk through these verses. But the other thing that's interesting about this section is that you might think, well, then he doesn't want us to pursue anything. In other words, the desire to, to achieve should not be something that should be evident in our life. But that's not so. He's going to move to the opposite because you might think, well, maybe he's telling us that we need to sit life out on the sidelines and there shouldn't be any kind of ambition and we shouldn't have dedication to our work. And that's what he gets at in verse 5. The fool folds his hands and he consumes his own flesh. Self-cannibalism, as he describes it so figuratively. Now this is an important truth. There is balance here then. There is harmony here in these verses. And it is hard for us sometimes in life to find the balance that God calls for, but we must seek it nonetheless. 
But no doubt Solomon is driving home the harsh reality awaits those whose life is consumed with trying to climb the ladder of success. And he begins from the inside and he's going to deal with the issue of envy and then he's going to list the other alternatives. And the first motivation is this. It is envy, it is jealousy, it is covetousness, it is greed. All of these things serve to motivate and drive us at times in life. And we must be cautious. We must be cautious. Why is it that we do what we do? What is it that drives us? We know that he talks about the, the, the oppression and the dangers that that brings to relationships, right? That you oppress other people and therefore you find that yourself driving them down so that you can excel and succeed. But here he finds something a little bit more subtle and it's a little bit more surreptitious, if you will. And I use this term because it's like the snake. And he describes this vice as a venomous thing that enters in you and it works in you and it permeates you and it contaminates everything even the things that you do and you don't always see it coming and you don't always see it drawing up in, you, in yourself this jealousy and this envy that drives the things that you do that, that drives the desire in your life so he's going to help us to understand some things but biblically we know that jealousy and envy it divides families go all the way back to Genesis right Chapter 30, verse 1, Rachel, she was upset because she couldn't give children to her husband, right? Her sister could, but she couldn't. So we find in Genesis that she was jealous. And there was a great jealousy between them. Chapter 37, verse 11, we find a similar thing with Joseph and his brothers. They were very jealous of him, so jealous they hated him. So we find that if we look in Scripture, we find that jealousy and envy, it comes with things. It doesn't just sort of lie in you and has this static existence. It starts to manifest itself in what you do. So you can even begin to analyze the things that you do and start to ask yourself, what is it that drove me to do that? And we find in Scripture from Job chapter 5, verse 2, that envy kills. Not only that, but it harasses, it, it cultivates hostility. You find at times that you see somebody has something that you want, you covet that, you want that, you're so upset that they have that, right? All of a sudden you start realizing that you now have these emotions of hostility towards this person. You may not even know the person, and yet you hate them because they have something that you don't have. Not only that, but it can produce anger. It is rottenness to the bones it may even bring on physical illness as a result of it. These vices, they don't just sort of sit in us and don't have an impact on us. They affect everything about us. Ezekiel chapter 35, verse 11, we see that envy and jealousy is accompanied with hatred. It finds sort of strange that when we think about these things, but we need to understand Scripture's take on envy and jealousy and greed and covetousness. It is described as evil in chapter 4, verse 3, because he gives this blanket statement, every evil activity that is done under the sun. And this blankets everything that he's talking about here. It is, if he says, Solomon says, it is hara. It is evil. In other words, it brings pain, it brings misery with it. I, I did this years ago. I did a study of words that describe sin. Started in the Old Testament and then went to the New Testament. And I wanted to understand what is the nature of sin. And so these words reveal that to us. Sometimes we have sin generally referred to as just simply as this here, evil. Some of us wouldn't think of sin as being evil, right? Well, I told a little white lie. But you know what that is to God? Evil. 
Well, I only took a little something from the store, Dad. You know what God calls that? Evil. <laughs> it also told me something else about sin. It told me about the consequences of sin. This word evil, hurrah, has to do with the consequences as well. It brings pain and misery with it. So when you have envy and jealousy and you covet other things and you're greedy for things, you're going to find misery in your life and you're going to bring pain not only to your life but to the lives of those around you. Why? Because you're going to have such an insatiable hunger to have something that someone else has and you're going to pursue it and go after it and you won't care who you step on to get it. I.e., you find yourself, like the beginning of chapter 4, you might find yourself oppressing other people to get what you want. Walter Kaiser says, men can be as cruel and inhuman to each other in unnecessary competition as they can be in oppression. I had to think about this for a minute, because this is interesting. Think about sports. Competition can turn ugly. Really ugly. I played in a church softball league. We were playing another church. All of a sudden, a fight breaks out in the dugout for the other team. Comes to find out, it was two individuals who were on the pastoral staff. Senior pastor, associate pastor, and they're throwing blows over a softball game in a church league. Competition isn't bad, but we must be careful because it can stir up things in us that are bad. All my kids played sports. I told them, you play hard, but you play fair. You show integrity on the field. There is competition. Yes, someone wins and someone loses. But that can also spur you on to do better, to refine yourself, to be the best you can possibly be at it. My daughter, I think, had to struggle with this a lot in soccer. She was really good. When she was younger, she punished the other team when they would play rough with her. She would just punish them by scoring goals. So I remember that they were playing in a tournament when she was younger. And every time that another girl on the other team would foul her to try to stop her, she'd score another goal. That tournament, she scored 16 goals. But as she got older, they got a little more physical. So I remember watching her play a game, and she's running down the field, break away. She's going to score a goal, and the girl grabs her ponytail and yanks it. This is how they play. This is how the world plays. This is envy. This is jealousy. So we can be competitive, but we must be careful. And if it brings out the worst in us, then maybe you shouldn't compete. It's easy to criticize the corporate greed and political oppression. We see this all the time. But what about the jealousy and the envy in our own lives? What about that thought that immediately comes in your mind when you look at your neighbor and say, how come they have that car and I can't afford that? How come they have this item and I don't? How come they can buy that kind of food to the store and I can't? You see, as soon as we start thinking that way, we've just opened the door. And no telling the pain and misery that will come as a result of that. So the mischief of envy, it leads to several things. And this is by D. Thomas. And then I give you some responses to it. He says, envy leads to, it will lead to unjust and malevolent action in order that it may secure its gratification. It will walk across other people and it doesn't care who you hurt. It's interesting that greed, oftentimes you find in the New Testament, Ephesians 5, Colossians, that greed is used with immorality and purity. Why? Because you have this insatiable craving for something more and more and more and you don't care who you hurt to get it. 
It also describes that as idolatry. Isn't that intriguing? That something has replaced God in your heart. Number two, he says this, it produces unhappiness in the core of, of the him who cherishes it and gnaws and it corrodes at the heart. It does this. It eats away at you. This is the thing about virtues. Virtues thrive and feed on each other. In other words, Colossians chapter 1 says that we have love and faith that is, springs from the hope that awaits us in heaven. So that hope, it's what produces faith and, lo and, and love inside of us, right? And we know that love is the fruit of the root of faith. These things interact together. Well, the same thing with vices in our life. They feed on each other. They don't just sort of sit by themselves. They bring other things. And so we find that this vice has a tendency to corrupt the soul. And it will bring bitterness and resentment in you, right? Because you start looking at other people that have the things that you don't have. And then I remembered this statement by St. Augustine, and I don't agree with everything he teaches, but I do agree with some things. One of the things he said is this. He said, resentment or bitterness is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. It will eat you alive from the inside out. But this is what happens when we envy and we're jealous. We become bitter and we start to resent. Number three, it is destructive of confidence and cordiality in society. In other words, it kills community. You can't have relationships when you drive like this and thrive like this. The curative then to envy, if I could, from this passage and thoughts that I had in regards to it, how do we stop envy in our hearts? First, we begin with this. It should be considered that whatever we acquire and enjoy is attributable to God. In other words, whatever we have comes from God. Every good thing comes from God. I, Paul asks this question, and I ask it myself often. What do you have that you have not received? So my kids, you know, when they're younger, ask, well, Dad, why do you pray over the food? You're the one who works. You're the one who makes the money. You're the one who goes and buys it. How come you thank God? Because he's the one who gives the job. He's the one who provides the income. He's the one who puts it on the table. Another thought is this, that all men have blessings that are far beyond what they are deserving of. For the wages of sin is death. Right? So the first time I committed sin in my life, before I could even speak, that first sinful attitude that was in my heart was deserving of death. And the fact that I didn't die, from that point on, life was a blessing. Was it not? I have received far more than what I deserve. Far more. Number three, think less about what you don't possess and more about what you do. This often creates envy and jealousy in our heart when we look at other people and start thinking about the things that we don't have and we oftentimes forget the things that we do have. Count your blessings. We're coming in on Thanksgiving. Take time, right? By yourself with God and just count your blessings. Thank Him for the things that you have in your life. So often we forget about the good things that are there because we're so busy looking about the things we don't have that we fail to notice the things that we have. As men, we tend to go to work, and, and I'm a workaholic like most others. My, my son said to me the other day, Dad, I, I never see you without a computer or a book in your hand. I'm always working on something. But here's what happens. Is that as you work to try to earn, to try to provide. But if you're not careful, you will miss the things that are amazing that are around you like your children and your wife. 
Number four, cultivate the spirit of Christ, the spirit of self-sacrifice and generosity. Give as as Christ gave. His whole life was spent in giving. It was grace giving with great joy. And we need to have this kind of attitude in our hearts. As I think about 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, where the Philippian church and the Macedonian churches, they begged Paul to be a part of the giving. They were beggars begging to be able to give bountifully. They pleaded with him. They wanted to give. This is the kind of heart that God wants us to have, a heart that is giving. And one of the passages that has always impacted me, and I go back to often, is Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, notice, so that he will have to share with one who has need. It doesn't say so that he will have to provide for himself and his family. It says so that he will have to provide for others who are in need. Why? (laughs) Because I often thought about this. Will you steal to acquire for yourself? But if I go to work to earn money simply for myself, is that not also selfish? But what if I go to work so that I can have to share with others who are in need? Now that's a different paradigm. But this is what God does. We draw the line here and he goes, no, 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 no. This is where I want you to go. This is where I want you to go. The alternatives then, quickly. We have the workaholic, we have the lazaholic, and then we have the contented. So all three of them will look at this. The desire for achievement is not necessarily bad in and of itself. God has designed us. He made us this way. We weren't meant to be static and we weren't meant to simply be passive. So to have ambition or to want to achieve something is not bad in and of itself. We just have to be cautious of what lies within. The avaricious man in verse 4, this is the greedy individual. He displays too much ambition and too little contentment or no contentment at all. He's greedy for more. He's never satisfied. There is no rest and contentment with him. Thus we have the two statements in verse 6. The one hand full of rest or the two fists full of labor and striving after the wind. Which one do you want? We want number one. (laughs) Right? So this is where Solomon is leading us to then. Envy prevents people from finding satisfaction in their work. I got to have more, more, more. Thus the drive must be harnessed with inner peace. We must find tranquility. There needs to be balance in our life, and we need to find that. I need to find that. So this is to me, the workaholic, I need to find balance in my life. It's okay to stop and take time and enjoy. And I always think, but this is the Lord's work, and I have to be doing this. It's okay to stop and take time to enjoy the gifts that He has given us. Enjoy our children before they all move out. And when they do, enjoy your wife. I asked my friend, all his kids are out of the house now, and I said, what's it like? He says, I'm dating my wife all over again. I said, it's a good thing. It's a good thing. I know because my wife and I, for years, we never went on dates, and then we finally said, you know what, maybe we need to go on a date, spend time together. But then we go on a date, and all we do is talk about the kids the whole time. just tells you how much we love our children. (laughs) Or maybe they're bringing misery into our life. Who knows? We have the indolent then in verse 5. The opposite danger is to withdraw from life altogether. And the the indolent individual in verse 5 exhibits too little ambition. 
an excessive contentment. In other words, there is that desire to just completely drop out. And Solomon, he describes this very clearly for us. This is in which you consume your own flesh. It is self-destructive. It is self-cannibalism. Some have tried to spin this positively, and I don't know how you can do that with the Hebrew, but some try, but I'm not going to go there. <laughs> it just doesn't work. So we have the sluggard who folds his hands, verse 5, and we know Proverbs over and over talks about this. And then we have in verse 6, the second line, the fast-track achiever, two fists full of labor. This is the hardworking. This is the workaholic. This is the one who's admired by society. This is the one who is caught up by all the trappings of everything around us, but this is the one who is given to burnout ultimately and who's going to suffer a heart attack. This is the one who is at risk. And we find Solomon will remind us over and over that satisfaction of success is short-lived. It doesn't last very long. The interesting thing about the statement here, and I had a little bit of Hebrew lesson for you, translated fists in verse 6, the second line. This is kofen. Kofen means to cup the hands. So when he talks about the two hands, not like it's like this, so you can hold more in your hand, right? So when you're a little kid and, and someone's pouring out a treat, they get both hands in there, right? I want a whole bunch of it, right? So this is what he's talking about, the ability to take as much as possible. You are the two-fister. This is the overachiever. This is the workaholic. He is going to describe this, uh, this preoccupation, the pursuit of wealth and everything else, and have, 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 it's as evil as laziness. They're in the same category. As far as God's concerned, they're both sin. In other words, we need to find that balance. And Solomon reminds us, and I have to remind myself of this all the time, Psalm 127, verse 2, this is the psalm for the workaholic. He says this, It is vain for you to rise early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors. I'm not going to change my sleeping habits. <laughs> I'm too far into the game to do that these days. Go to bed at 5 in the morning. It's just the way I am. But I have to be reminded that I can work, 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 work. But God provides for us even while we're sleeping. It is vain for you to rise early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors, for he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. You know, while we're sleeping at night, men, that God is making provision for us for the next day, the next week, the next month, the next year. He's already in the future and made those provisions before we even get there. We have then the fortunate few who can achieve a sense of balance. And this is where we end the beginning part of verse 6. The one hand full of rest or quietness. This is the one who is content. This is the one who is at peace. And this is the reminder that you can be content. Existing with fewer possessions and fewer things. And you can have some goods in life. Yet you can enjoy them and you can be satisfied. Take the time to thank God this week. I know we do it as a formality, but for us as individuals, just in our hearts before God, take time and just thank Him for all the blessings that you have in your life because there is an overabundance, is there not? If we really sit down. It's like I remember when I was in seminary, I had to take a class on prayer. And I was like, Really? You know, it's a class on prayer. And so we had to write these, these prayer reports, like our, what we prayed for, what was our request, 
how much time we spent in prayer and all that. And then we would put it, and then the teacher would grade them. I'm like, how do you grade my prayer requests, right? This is ridiculous. And the, one of the requirements is you had to pray for an hour every day. I'm like, seriously? An hour? Right? <laughs> but when I started just thanking God for things, I realized that an hour became two hours, became three hours. If I didn't stop, right? Because you start to realize all the things that God has done in your life and how much He has graciously and mercifully bestowed on you so much. So take time to thank Him. Take time to thank Him. I leave you with two Proverbs. Proverbs 14.30 A tranquil spirit revives the body, but envy is rottenness to the bones. Proverbs 15.16 Better is a little with fear of the Lord than great treasure and turmoil with it. And this word turmoil has to do with anxiety. Watch anxiety when we seek to to possess and to have and to own and to go after. But we can find contentment, but we find that when we fear God, treasure Him and the things that He blesses us with. Let's pray.